In my previous video, I said that my next video would be called Why I Am Not an Inerrantist. And you will notice that that is not, in fact, the title of this video, so I obviously changed my mind. It is, however, relevant, and it is part of the same series on inerrancy, but I realized that some additional setup was necessary. So I'm doing that setup here, and it's further taxonomy. Taxonomy is laying out categories of things. I love taxonomy. As an uh, analytic philosopher, I find it to be just such a useful tool. And this taxonomy is based on epistemology and the way that a proposition is supported, which makes it even better from my perspective, because that's my, my specialty. I hope that you will find it useful. And I think you will see as I go on how this taxonomy is relevant to the question of why I am not an inerrantist. And you will even begin to see the answer to that question. The taxonomy I want to give today is four different kinds of traditional inerrancy. Watch my earlier videos for the distinction between traditional inerrancy and neo-inerrancy. But to put it briefly, all of the inerrantists I'm talking about today in these four types believe that a book such as the Gospels that just presents itself unequivocally as historical, and its sections are unequivocally historical, is um, getting all of those historical details correct. That's that because it's inerrancy. And that the authors are not deliberately changing any of that. So these are all traditional inerrantists, but there's a further fourfold division that I think is useful. Now, the first division comes where we take our four types and we divide them into groups of two. So we have this this division up at that level, that level of the hierarchy. And that's between deductive inerrantists and non-deductive or inductive inerrantists. You may have heard of that distinction before if you're interested in this topic. And then I'm going to have two further categories under each of them. So I'm going to start with two kinds of deductive inerrantists. The first kind I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on in this video, and that is the presuppositionalist inerrantist. I suspect that whatever summary I give of this, I may give some offense. I'm going to try to be brief but fair. The presuppositionalist inerrantist starts with the assumption that the Bible is the Word of God, the canonical Bible. Usually such a person is Protestant, and so it would be the 66 books of the Protestant canon, but you could have a, a presuppositional inerrantist who was Roman Catholic, and so he would have some additional books. But the, the books that belong in the canon of the Bible that are scripture, he starts with the assumption those are inerrant in, in all of these areas. And uh, presuppositionalists will sometimes make what they call a um, transcendental argument for the existence of God, because th that God exists is also a presupposition. I'm not going to get into this right now, what that transcendental argument is. And they will also say that they're not opposed to giving evidence, so I want to present that. But sometimes a phrase that they will use is that the believer and the unbeliever are never on a level playing field, and uh, that you, you never start evidentially from an epistemological point of view. If you don't start with the Bible, you're not going to end with the Bible and so forth. So that is just an assumption that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And then 
Given that assumption, it follows further deductively that it is inerrant. So that's our presuppositional deductive inerrantist. The second category I'm going to call a Geislerian deductive inerrantist. This type of inerrantist does what I'm going to call an up and down movement. So the up part of the movement is the argument to the conclusion that the gospel, uh, the gospels and the other books of the canon are in fact inspired by God, God breathed. And that up portion of the argument is going to be evidential. It's not going to be presuppositional. So your Geislerian inerrantist is going to give an argument, for example, that Jesus was God, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's going to be more of an evidentialist argument that God exists, uh, maybe some Thomistic proofs that God exists, and those kinds of things. And then once you get to the proposition here that these books have been endorsed by Jesus, maybe through endorsing his apostles, also through endorsing the Old Testament, and that they are the inspired word of God, then the rest of the argument, and so this is the, the down portion, so I said it's, you know, it's up and then down. The down portion of the argument is deductive. So you deductively reason if it's inspired, if it's God-breathed, if it's God-given, then it must be, just by the very concept, it must be inerrant, both in theological and in historical facts. Now these categories, by the way, all of them are usually applied to the autographs that were written by the uh, the in initial authors, so there could be scribal errors that are allowed for. I tend not to make a big deal out of that because I don't really think that's where the action is in this, in this debate. Uh, when it comes to an argument about when Jesus cleansed the temple, nobody who's really into this debate believes that there was a scribal error or that appealing to the autographs is helpful here. So with respect to the things that we're really interested in, scribal errors or not scribal errors aren't going to help. So I'm not really, I don't care, you know. Yes, the, the autographs. But the point is the Geislerian deductive inerrantist has the first part of his argument that is, is not necessarily deductive, it's evidential. Uh, although it might also include some deductive Thomistic proofs or something for the existence of God. But then once you get to these are scripture, then that portion is deductive, that if they're, if they're scripture, they must be inerrant. Now I'm going to move on to the inductive, non-deductive inerrantist, and I'm going to talk about two types of inductive inerrantist. Now, this is, as far as I know, original with me. I don't think you're going to hear the distinction I'm about to make anywhere else out there. So be glad that you subscribe to this YouTube channel because uh, you may find this interesting and you're only going to hear it here. Um, so the first kind is what I'm going to call a non-deductive inerrantist without theological premises. So again, these are epistemological categories. How does the person argue for or know or claim to know the proposition? I suspect that a lot of people do what I did, which is to kind of go back and toggle back and forth between being a non-deductive inerrantist without theological premises and being a non-deductive inerrantist with theological premises, which I'll get to in a moment. But So I'm not saying someone is you know, for years, definitely being one of these. But at any given moment, when you ask a person, 
are you an inheritance? And he says, yes. And he tells you why he's going to, he's going to be doing one of these things, one of these four things. And, uh, because I, I really think I've covered the ground. And if he says he's an inductive inerratist, he'll, he'll give you one or the other type of argument. So an inductive inerratist without theological premises is arguing for or holding the inerrancy of the books of scripture in exactly the same way that you could hold the inerrancy of a newspaper. In fact, if you go book by book, it could be the same way that you would hold to the inerrancy of different daily issues of the same newspaper, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, etc. Yep, you know, and you would just go through and you would decide that they don't, in fact, contain any errors. So if someone says, well, I have all this evidence for high reliability, I mean, I bring, I, I'm a not an inheritance, but I bring evidence for high reliability. I have all this evidence for high reliability. I I don't ha have to assume that they contain errors. And uh, when it comes to resolving them, where there's an alleged contradiction, I've, I've just always found the person might say that they can be resolved. I and mean, I've been satisfied with that. And so, you know, I don't, I don't have anything yet the person would say that I think is an error. And again, you could do that for something that is not in any way inspired. That's not bringing in any premises about theology or inspiration. Or you could do it for a friend. You could say, thus far, my friend has, as far as I know, he's never made an error, at least, you know, in this area or something. You know, he's inerrant in this area without thinking that your friend is inspired. No theological categories. The second kind of inductive inerrantist or non-deductive inerrantist, which I suspect a lot of people are tacitly in the back of their minds, is someone who makes that first argument, but then also in addition, he's using theological premises to make him, we might say, extra reluctant to attribute an error. And those theological premises would be similar to those that are brought by the deductive inerrantist. Well, you know, Jesus endorsed the Old Testament. He said, not one jot or tittle would pass from the law. There seems to be among the founders of, because we're assuming this person is a Christian, uh, I suppose a Jew could be an inerrantist about the Old Testament, but, you know, within the founders of the religion that he believes is well-supported, uh, there is a concept of scripture, and scripture is inspired in some way more than the sense in which Wordsworth's poetry was inspired. It's supposed to, there's it's supposed to be some greater involvement of God, even if you don't know exactly what that felt like to the writer or exactly what that looked like, even if you acknowledge a distinction between a prophet who's just sort of speaking verbatim what God has given and uh, a writer of a historical document. Still, if, if you're going to call that scripture and you're going to say it's inspired, it's supposed to be coming from God in some special way. And so if you are an inductive inerrantist who is using theological premises among others, so you're using both non-theological and theological premises, you're including theological premises, you're going to say, you know, that's some reason to think that it's not going to contain even historical errors. If God wants us to regard these as authoritative documents, I mean, you know, it would seem that he wouldn't allow the authors to make errors, including historical errors. If he's, if the Holy Spirit is somehow supervising this, somehow involved in it in a special way, that's a, that's a reasonable prima facie on the face of it assumption, but it's defeasible.
the biggest difference between a deductive and a non-deductive inerrantist is on this matter of defeasibility. For the deductive inerrantist, as far as I understand, the only way that you could defeat his notion that a, a book is inerrant would be to convince him that it does not belong in the canon, that it isn't scripture. But the non-deductive inerrantist is going to have a defeasible version of inerrancy by instances. Defeasible by instances. What I mean by that is he's going to look at individual instances and be prepared epistemologically and psychologically to decide, okay, yeah, looks like that is an error. One thing to remember here is that we're talking about the disjunction when we are talking about inerrancy. By that I mean either this is an error or that is an error or that is an error or there that is an error for various proposed places. The inerrantist of any kind denies that disjunction. The errantist doesn't even necessarily have to be committed to a particular error in a particular place, but affirms this disjunction. Yes, one or the other of the following places there is an error. And I would say the non-deductive inerrantist of either variety is very keenly aware of that disjunction, at least tacitly. You know, that if any of these turns out to be an error, then he's not, and he thinks so, that any of them is, then he is no longer in good faith able to declare himself to be an inerrantist. And he doesn't have that same kind of deductive, well, you know, if this is scripture at all, then they're not, you know, none of them is, that's just it. Um, so you can see how in these four kinds, the, the connection to inerrancy is stronger or weaker epistemologically. Even a deductive inerrantist, even a presuppositionalist, can decide, probably usually pretty abruptly, that he's not an inerrantist anymore. Socially and psychologically, I might guess, I'm open to being refuted, that the presuppositional inerrantist is most more likely to lose his faith altogether if he uh, abandons inerrancy than the non-deductive inerrantist of either type. That doesn't necessarily tell you who's right or wrong, though. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying that because of the, the abruptness and because of the uh, a priori commitment nature of it. Okay, now a little tiny bit of personal history here, and I'll wrap up this video for today. I don't know how many people know this. I went to college when I was 16 years old. I went to a college at that time called Baptist Bible College of Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. And I um, was very knowledgeable about the Bible, given my upbringing in the Baptist Church. But um, I didn't have an official presuppositional or evidential commitment because that issue was not explicitly discussed. But I would say that my upbringing was what we might call presuppositionalist friendly, and probably most of my pastors were presuppositionalists looking back and teachers. 
when I went to Bible college, there was a strong presuppositionalist element at BBC at that time. Uh, I'd say there were there was some division. There was a book I didn't look it up before the uh, video called "Both and a Balanced Apologetic," and that was kind of popular then. But I would say most of the most popular and influential professors were explicitly presuppositionalist or leaning very strongly that way. So unsurprisingly. I became a presuppositionalist under that training, and I can sincerely say that I was a teenage presuppositionalist. Um, in my relationship with Tim McGrew, he was always an evidentialist, and he and I discussed it, and I, I very strongly changed my mind, and by the time we were married, which is when I was 20 years old, I was an evidentialist. For a long time thereafter, I would say I was a Geislerian deductive inerrantist, though without necessarily associating Dr. Geisler's name with it, but I, you know, I, I knew of him. Um, and that would have been my position. I'm having trouble nailing down the year or the, the year range when I shifted to become a non-deductive inerrantist, certainly sometime in the past 20 years probably sometime in the past 15, possibly even the past 12, something like that. And and then I think after that for quite a while, I was a, a most of the time at least unconsciously, I was a non-deductive inerrantist, but of that second kind where I was reluctant to attribute even historical errors to the God, to the Bible. And I, I thought that in fact, I hadn't found one yet. Um, and I had, you know, theological considerations to which I was giving weight. Though sometimes if you asked me, I probably would have talked more like the uh, non-deductive inerrantist without theological premises. Well, you know, I just don't in fact think there are any errors there, you know, like you would say about a any uh, secular document or you might say about a secular document. But I think tacitly I was the, the second kind. It's also hard for me to pin down the year when I decided that I was not an inerrantist. But I would say that it was as a result, in no small part, of um, my examining the Gospels in detail, though that wasn't all, as I'll talk about in the next video, and my becoming very keenly aware of that disjunctive nature of the inerrantist claim. Um, and then the other thing is that a non-deductive inerrantist tries to separate the theological and the non-theological parts of his argument. And I think that's useful for anybody to do, but it can make you very keenly aware of where the, the sort of non-theological evidence is pointing. What's the vector of that? And in a number of these cases, I was saying, you know, if I, if I were just setting aside theological considerations, I would say, by a margin, the simplest conclusion is that this author made a good faith error. So I eventually drew that conclusion. And that's what I'll be talking about a little bit next time. So you can kind of see that movement through the different kinds and their relationship to the, uh, to the epistemology of inerrancy and how, depending on what kind you are, you're going to make a certain type of shift if you do cease to be an inerrantist. Now, I just think this taxonomy is really useful, whether you are or are not an inerrantist. So I hope you'll find it useful either to categorize yourself or other people to whom you're speaking. 
And with that in hand, and that little bit of personal history in hand, I'll be talking next time more about why I am not an inerratist. Please be sure to like and subscribe, and I would like to urge you to share videos from this channel with other people on social media or personally, and to urge other people to subscribe as well, because that's just really useful uh, to me. And, you know, I'm not asking for any money, but what I am asking is to try to get this get this material out, because I think this material has use. Be sure to browse on the, the videos, on the video list, and find others that you're interested in, and watch those, or listen to the audio from those, and then share and subscribe the Lydia McGrew YouTube channel, where we're making common sense rigorous.